welcome to the POMEPS Conversations. I'm Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science, and with me today is Professor Nathan Brown, also of George Washington University. Um, uh, welcome to the POMEPS Conversations. Thanks for having me. So, Nathan, you wrote uh, an outstanding uh, essay in, in a book that I edited, uh, The Arab Uprisings Explained, where I thought you did a great job of summarizing the way that the texture and, and the stuff of Arab politics has changed over the years that you've been studying it. And I wonder now, looking at the region as it is today, um, how do you think it differs from you know, some of those earlier eras of Arab politics? It is remarkably different, I think, in some ways. I mean, the uh, there is, I think, one thing that is constant, and that is a sense that politics has failed, and certainly existing uh, uh, states have failed most of the population of, of the uh, region. That's a sense that was there a generation ago, and it's there now only, only deeper. What really has changed, I think, most centrally is just the engagement of people within the region in the political sphere. I mean, we're talking with, we're painting with a very broad uh, strokes here, but the fact is that when I go to the region today and strike up a conversation, sometimes with a perfect stranger, it goes immediately to politics. Whereas when I first started studying the Arab world back in the 1980s, that was the one subject which everybody was interested in avoiding. What about now, though? I mean, certainly after the, the, the early Arab uprisings, the Egyptian Revolution, I mean, that was definitely a, a time when everyone was very enthusiastic and excited. This is a more dismal period in, in the regional politics. Do you still feel like uh, that's true today? I think it is definitely true. I don't think that the problem in the Arab world right now is a disengagement from the political sphere. That may be coming, but it hasn't happened yet. In a sense, I think you've still got uh, publics that are very much engaged. What has happened, I think, especially in the five years since the uprisings, is that the idea of the public has been uh, something that has begun to decay. You wrote about this in your recent current history piece, and I think it gets it exactly right. The idea back in 2011 was that you had a united society in Egypt and Tunisia, and even to some extent a united Arab world, that was speaking in a single voice. And perhaps it was for a little bit, but that single voice has ended. Um, and now you've got a region that is very much polarized, sectarian issues, which were secondary five years ago, are, have now come to the forefront. Uh, states have, and regimes have found ways to manipulate and expand divisions, and so on. So, so one thing that has happened is not that people have exited political realms, but they basically discovered how deeply they disagree with each other. And the second thing that I think has happened is that there was a hope about five years ago that you could take some of that popular energy and popular enthusiasm and harness it through institutional means, whether it was through uh, elections or demonstrations or mobilizing in some way, shape, or form, and organize institutional forms of politics, of normal politics, what I would call normal politics, of, of forming political parties, running for office, drafting legislation, and that sort of thing, that has proved to be a big disappointment. There isn't a political system in the air world today, with the possible exception of Tunisia, that does that any better or more effectively than it did five years ago. Well, let's get specific. So Egypt recently seated its new parliament. Um, why exactly does it not do the things that uh, you think a parliament should do? Well, uh, there's a, a 
couple problems with the existing parliament. Uh, number one, it's a parliament that doesn't really reflect so much a host of social constituencies or political constituencies or economic constituencies. What it seems to represent is a host of leading personalities, a host of state agencies, the degree to which, for instance, the security services were involved in forming the parliament. Um, uh, um, was was seems to have been very very large. Um, it's a, it's an institution that doesn't seem to have any kind of coherence. In one way, it, you could say it's a little bit worse than the Mubarak era parliaments because at least the Mubarak era parliaments had a national democratic party and it had clear opposition parties that were represented in the parliament. The parliament that exists in Egypt today is one where you can't, there's no real effective opposition in the parliament, but those people who are pro-regime seem to be just as much undisciplined as the opposition is. So you've got a parliament that has tremendous constitutional authority on paper that my guess is simply will not be able to use it in any effect way that has an immediate task right now of of, uh, of passing judgment and all the laws that were issued in its absence and doesn't it's supposed to do that within 15 days it doesn't even have time to read them much less act coherently on them well, let's talk about the opposition then. Uh, so the Muslim Brotherhood, you've written a lot about this over the years. Uh, you had the book a few years back, uh, When Victory is Not an Option, and then of course we all know how, how things went. You know, do you see uh, any sign that the Muslim Brotherhood is rethinking or is able to find a new place in Egyptian politics or more broadly? It's rethinking, but not in the way that I would have necessarily expected or the way that I think would have been healthy for Egypt. Um, um, what, what, what some people expected was that the Brotherhood would come out of the experience of being thrown out of power and saying, look, we made some mistakes, we alienated potential constituencies, uh, we perhaps went a little bit too far, we were a little bit too majoritarian, and and uh, uh, so on, and we can pick ourselves up, be the Muslim Brotherhood of old, and uh, re gradually recover our position. There are such voices within the Brotherhood, but I am increasingly convinced that the Brotherhood that we saw really since Hassan al-Banna may not be the Brotherhood of the future. Um, that instead it's, uh, it has concluded that its problem, it, that it did make mistakes, but its mistakes were to be too compromising, that it wasn't revolutionary enough, that it didn't push uh, 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 hard enough, that in a sense what it was trying to do was to work too much within the system to reform from the inside, and it should have brought the system crashing down. So it's a more radical brotherhood. Um, it's more radical both in terms of ANS. is now an, uh, an organization that talks of revolution, a term it didn't used to use, and it talks about revolution in fairly radical terms, bringing down the Egyptian state. And it's also increasing, increasingly, I think, toying, a toying with uh, more radical means as well. The idea of nonviolence, which was really sort of woven into the fabric of the Brotherhood, at least its leadership from the 1980s on, doesn't seem to be there anymore. There is there Instead, there's a strong emphasis on vengeance, and some of that might actually be taking already, uh, we see, a turn towards um, some kind of at least low-level violence. If you look back at uh, at your own writing about Egypt uh, from you know 2011 onward, is there anything which you think that in retrospect you wish you had said differently, or that you now think that maybe you got wrong? 
The way that I think about this, the way that I've sort of explained it is, I think my, my, my thinking was often sound, my feelings often were not. That is to say, all the pitfalls and problems were clear, I think, from the beginning. The polarization became very, very clear. The procedural mistakes that the, uh, brother, that, that the Egyptians were making were very, very clear. And yet I was very convinced um, back in 2011 that there was enough revolutionary enthusiasm and enough commonality of purpose that would somehow carry Egyptians through, that it was going to be a very, very messy transition to some kind of better political system simply because there was so much enthusiasm and idealism and energy behind it. So my head was generally... I, I would often have kind of sound reservations, but my heart was, I think, won over simply by really a, a, a really lovely atmosphere in Egypt that I experienced in the spring of 2011. In other words, uh, you, we, you should have listened to your head and not your heart. I think that might be my own personal lesson, as well, uh, and, 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 and it could be a lesson for an awful lot of the people who were involved in the struggles for political change as well. Um, they, were, they were understandably enthusiastic about the changes that they uh, wrought in 2011, but I think underestimated, the, uh, as a result, the, the formidable nature of the challenges in front of them. All right, thank you. And Nathan Brown of George Washington University, Carnegie Endowment, International Peace. Um, thank you for joining the Pull Match Conversations. Thanks for having me.